in Romans chapter 12 again. Romans chapter 12. I've lost count. I think this may be the sixth message, I think, in Romans 12. It's looking like we're going to have eight sermons, if I had to say, out of Romans 12. Not too many. That's good. It's a good pace, right? Uh, What we're in right now is section 9 through verse 13. And in these 13 verses, you're going to hear and see... 13 exhortations or instructions. We will not have 13 points today. Last week we had one point. Uh, We kind of drew five of these phrases out of these verses to make the one, I think, the main point really for the rest of the book. And we could say really the whole book. What we just heard the song about and then the other songs this morning, the grace of God uh, given to us because of the love of God. And so that would be the main theme moving forward, but certainly of these five verses. So here's what I want to do. I want to jump right into the text, not doing a lot of pre-reading, verse 9 through 13, second part of this message, verse 9. Let love be genuine. This was such a strong theme that I went back to it Wednesday night, couldn't get away from it. This is like the main theme. If Grace View could be good at anything, let us be good at loving. And I think if we'll be good at loving, we'll be really good at a lot of other things. Let love be, but let love be genuine, real, sincere, not faked or forced, not hypocritical. And then strangely, right behind it, abhor what is evil. Thirteen statements coming right at you. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Cleave to it. Glue yourself to it. Cling to it. Be bonded, epoxied to good. When you find the good, latch on to it and don't let go. Now abhor that which is evil. Verse 10, we looked at last week. Love one another with brotherly affection. So it's not just love of the will and wanting what's best in verse 9. This is actually affection, heart. I love you and I like you. Outdo one another, the Bible says. Hey, this sounds like some competition. I'm all about some competition. Outdo one another in showing honor. Did you do that today? Those of you that were here last week, have you been outdoing one another in showing honor? Or are we still living in that natural bubble and that tunnel where it's easy to look only inward? Or maybe you say, well, I'm looking inward and upward. That's good. But if we're really looking upward, then we should be starting to look outward as well. Verse 11 to 13. Do not be slothful. Meaning don't be lazy. Grace view. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. You see these just keep coming at us. Rejoice in hope. Heard that a few times in the songs a while ago. Be patient in tribulation. Tribulation's coming. In tribulation, be patient. Persevere. Endure, as we'll see. How? Be constant in prayer. And then as we looked at last week, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Don't just be willing to show hospitality. Literally come in pursuing, seeking opportunities to show hospitality to the visitor and the stranger that might be among us, the guest. We kind of took an angle last week and we'll continue this week of 
if verses 3 through 8 show that we as individual members of the body of Christ are gifted members of the body of Christ, making a gifted body, even on the local level here at Graceview, then verses 9 through 13 we could say are not only a gifted body, this is a healthy body. What is a healthy body of believers? Number one last week was our main point. It flows through this week. We found, number one, that a healthy body is a loving body. A healthy body is loving. And I would say that would be true in the physical realm as well. If someone is truly healthy in every part of their being, then they're going to be a loving person. We found that love has three things out of the text. Love is selfless. It doesn't focus on itself and what it's going to get out of it. If it's genuine, it is others-centered, others-oriented. Love is natural. It's not pretending like I'm going to love kind of like brothers. No, we love our brothers and sisters. And we found that love is giving and hospitable. And then today, picking up in the middle of verse 9, a healthy body, number two, is pure. So we're not going to have 13 points. We're going to kind of combine some things. I feel like these five verses have four main points. Number one, a healthy body is loving. Number two, a healthy body is pure. Listen to what I've, what I've typed out. Your physical body, the one you're sitting in right there, cannot be healthy if it has a buildup of poisonous or septic material. We know this. If you have poison backing up in your system, you have septus just backing up in your system, you can't be healthy. Listen carefully what I'm about to say. In the exact same way of your physical body, then we as a body of Christ, we as a local church, cannot be spiritually healthy if we allow sin to build up and spiritually poisonous things and spiritually septic things to come into our faith family. So I'd ask this section over here, how is your purity, your personal purity? How is your personal purity? You say, well, I'm part of the Graceview family that Brandon talked about earlier. Do you guys know that if we as a church take a stance and we just kind of coddle and support evil things, then we are not being pure? But on an individual level, since you are part of the faith family, you need to keep taking the garbage out because we tend to have poisonous, spiritually septic things come into our life and we have to claim 1 John 1, 9, take the garbage out. Don't let it build up. How is your purity? If I could word it this way. How is your heart? How is your heart? Yours? It's about what you love. A healthy body is pure. Look at verse 9 in the middle. Start to let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. I find it personally a little bit strange. At first, Paul's call to love is immediately followed by a call to hate, disdain, abhor. Let, let these things be seen as putrefying. Love genuinely, selflessly. Don't pretend, don't fake. We talked about it Wednesday night. Don't come in next week like, all right, we've got to say more loving things. We've got to do more loving things. No, have love, develop love. By the way, you have it if you're a Christian. Develop love, others-oriented. Don't come in with focus just on you. Be looking outward. Who have you served already today? If that is genuine and that is true, then the very next step that follows the other side of the coin literally is to hate some things. You say, what? Hatred is one of the ways we express true love. You say, how is that? When love is genuine, 
it automatically stirs up a hatred, a disdain, and abhorrence of anything that might be seen as harming those we love or as offending the one we love. Does this harm? Does this offend? Well, then I hate it because I love those people. I love those things. Now, evil harms. Evil offends. I want to say an obvious statement right here, and most of us would think, duh, that's the dumbest note he's ever had. That's pretty clear. Guys, you would actually be surprised in our country. Many people will not believe the next note you're going to write if you're taking your notes. It goes like this. There is such a thing as evil. And there is such a thing as good. Listen, I'll tell you right now. Jeff, do you think there's any gray in society? I find some things. You ask me here. Boy, if you'd asked me years ago, I'd say, man, it's black and white. And now maybe I'd be like, I don't know, it's a little bit gray. But listen, there is far more black and white than our society is telling us there is. Is there some gray? Absolutely, there's some gray. There's some things I don't know about. But there's black and white. There is such a thing as good. There is such a thing as evil. You say, how will we know the difference? Here's your cue. The nature of God defines what is good. The nature of God defines what is evil. Learn what God's nature is and you'll learn what is good and you'll learn what is evil. The Bible says, oh, taste and see. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Psalms is full of these statements. The Word of God is good. Christ is good. The Holy Spirit is good. Here's the thing. What pleases God? God is a real being. He literally has feelings toward things. That pleases me. That is putrefying, abominable to me. So that's how we would define what is good. If it pleases God's nature, hold on to it. Cleave to it. Glue yourself to it. Glue yourself to God. Cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cleave to the Word of God. Cleave to the Holy Spirit. Cleave to that which brings good to His people and pleases His nature. Now, the flip of that is evil. Say, so what is evil? I guess, I think I'm comfortable saying this. Evil is that which offends God's nature. So we have a Bible. I have a Bible. And in the Old Testament, we call it the law. But this whole word of God is a reflection of the nature of God. And the Bible says sin in 1 John chapter 4, I believe it is. Maybe it's chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of God's law. So the law of God, the word of God is a reflection of his nature. Sin is acting lawlessly like we don't even know what God's nature is, like it hasn't been revealed. We see what it is and we just trample over it. That's sin. That is evil. We are to hate that. Hate it. By the way, don't be fooled by evil and sin's innocent cries to you. I think we live in a day where that which is blatantly evil has duped us into accepting it as tolerable, I really think in our day, maybe more than ever, because of sinful viewing habits and listening habits. It seems innocent. Well, it's not a big deal. And before long, you just keep watching it, maybe laughing at it, getting a kick out of it, watching it, gazing on sin and just filling our lives, our ears with sin. And before long, we are not abhorring evil. We're kind of actually adoring it and loving it and coddling it. The Bible in verse number 9 says very simply, let your love be genuine so much so that you abhor that which is evil and you cleave to that which is good. Hold fast to what is good. Now, this is where I'm going to give one of my lists, right? 
This is not as long as the list that we did about a year ago on a Wednesday night, but it's a list. Say, Jeff, can you give us some of the things that are very clear in the Bible that we're supposed to abhor? Well, it would include some of the obvious things like this. Idolatry. Hate it. Blaspheming. Listen, blaspheming. Take the name of the Lord in vain. Jesus' name. God's name. The Lord's name. You hear it all the time around you. What does that do to you? You say, well, I've heard it so many times now. In fact, it just really doesn't even move the needle of my emotions anymore. We are to hate, disdain, abhor, blaspheming. Dishonoring parents. Listen, guys, it isn't cute. It isn't cute. It's sinful. It's evil. It harms people. It dishonors God. It offends God. We know about murder. That's clear. Adultery. Any of that in the house going on secretly, privately. Adultery. Stealing. You know what I mean? Stealing from strangers. Stealing from family. Happens a lot. Both of those happen a lot. Stealing from the employer. Stealing from employees. Stealing from the government. Stealing from God by not giving to God what's rightfully His. Any stealing going on. Hate that. Abhor that. Lying. Fornication. You say you already touched adultery earlier, right? That's when one of the people or two of the people are married. Fornication is much broader than that. It's all kinds of other sexual sins. Substance abuse of the body that God gave you, that if you're saved is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Physical abuse. Abhor these things. Pornography. Cursing. You say, Jeff, those are all the obvious things. We know that. When the Bible says abhor what is evil, does your mind include these things? Equally. You say, well, everything that you just said, I'm good on. I hate all those things. God hates pride. Hates it. Six things that the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination. The very first one he lists. Haughty eyes. A proud look. Greed. Not going to give. Closed hand. Not open-handed. Closed heart. Not open heart. Closed door. Closed house. Not an open house. Greed. Here's one. Gossip. It's not funny. It's not cute. Sins. Evil. Harms people. Dishonors God. Offends God. Bitterness. Heard that word in a song just a while ago. Bitterness. Lust. Well, I'm not actually doing anything with it. I'm just thinking it on the inside. Selfish anger. You say, is there anything other than selfish anger? Yes, there's righteous anger. We read just last week, those of you doing the reading plan, John 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. We know about this. Selfish anger is sinful. Here's a big one. Unforgiveness. Someone's offended me. They've tried to make it right. I've maybe paid lip service or I haven't even told them that I'm holding out. I want to keep them beat down. I really like having the power where they kind of have to cower when I'm around. I like holding it over them. Unforgiveness is evil. It harms people. It offends God. Envy, jealousy, slander, just using our words to tear people down. Someone walks up to you, they think fine about that person. They have nothing against that person, but you proceed to tell them things that they really don't even need to know. And by the time they leave, they think much less of that person. God hates evil. It offends him. We are to abhor it. Don't laugh at it. Don't gaze on it. Don't crave it. Now, if I stopped my point right there and moved on to the second one, everything I've said would be accurate. It would be true. It would be biblical. But we need to be honest just before we move to the second point. Here's where we need to be honest. 
every last one of us, if we're honest, if you listen to that list of, I think, 22 things, and that's a sample list, all of us would say, hey, Brother Jeff, I naturally like some of those things. And some of those things on there I just hate, and well, I see it in others, and I really dislike it, but there's a few of those things I'm actually drawn toward. They appeal to me, and maybe more sad, I'm supposed to be cleaving to that which is good and, and just holding fast and gluing myself to Christ and to His Word. And be honest with you, I'm drawn sometimes more to those things, and I'm not really drawn to the Word of God. I wished it drew me more. In fact, someone sitting here this morning, you say, I have like no desire toward God. I don't even know why I'm in his house today. And I have all these desires. That list, many of those things appeal to me, at least on the inside. That's a problem. So much so that John Piper says, the only chance we have to fulfill, verse 9b, the only chance is to have a brand new birth, have a whole new heart. I'm going to flip in my Bible back to Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to fight the temptation to dig into the context here. But look what the Old Testament is. just one of two or three or four places where the Scripture talks about this new birth, this, this new heart. In fact, on Friday, some of us read John chapter 3, and in that Jesus tells Nicodemus, kind of one of the teachers, the main teacher there along with Gamaliel in, in his time period, Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't you know that a man must be born again? Listen, you say, I crave these evil things and I don't crave the Lord like I should all the time. I have a huge problem. You need a new heart. You need a new birth. It's the only chance you have. Don't you know you must be born again? If you're never born again, you cannot, will not see the kingdom of God. Can't go to heaven. Ezekiel chapter 36 predicts this is going to happen. Verse 26, after saying, I will clean you, Literally, he's going to clean these people and wash away their sins. Verse 26, I will, here's a promise that is fulfilled. It's what Jesus is talking about in John 3. Here it is, hundreds of years before. I will give you, guys, listen, here's a promise from Scripture. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone, the crusty, hard-hearted, set on evil, that one. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, soft, tender, open to the things of God. Verse 27. And, not only a new heart, I will put my spirit within you and cause you. Watch. You're not drawn toward my laws and my rules and my ways and my reflection and my nature and pleasing me. But I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You cannot do it on your own. I will put my spirit in you. Here, guys, write this down. Say, Jeff, do we have a chance? I propose to you, if you have done this, if you haven't, when you do this, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, watch the order here, as Lord and Savior, then God imparts His Spirit literally inside of you and He starts a process. It is not an instant download. I've said that before. You say, say I got saved back years and years ago. Why am I still fighting this? It is not in boom, wake up one day, instant download. I no longer crave those things. I no longer desire those things. Gossip is no longer fun to me. Slander is no longer juicy. 
right? Pornography has no appeal whatsoever. I woke up one morning, it is all gone. And now I just want to talk with the Lord and read his word all day long and tell people about Jesus. It's amazing. That is not how it happens. That's not real world. It's a process. But it's a guaranteed process. I believe it's a guaranteed process. When the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life, he causes us. I got a ways to go, guys. I got saved when I was nine. I'm now 48. What is that, 39 years? I got a ways to go, but I can tell you there are some things in my life that were more craving and addictive, and I tended toward those things that no longer have the hold over me. I still don't crave the Lord and His Word all the time like I should, but it's a lot more than I used to. If you're here this morning, you say, I've been saved longer than that. Have you not seen that same pattern if you're in your life? If you say, I've not seen, seen that same pattern, something is wrong. I'm not telling you what Jeff is doing, what Jeff has done. I'm telling you what God has done. This is what the Lord does. He causes us to abhor that which is evil more and more and more. And he causes us to delight and cling to and hold to and crave that which is good more and more and more. Where would you get that from? Romans chapter 8, verse 29. They find it. It will be on the screen. Romans 8, verse 29. For whom? Let me find it. There we go. For those whom he foreknew, here's a promise, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he foreknew, those that will get saved, he, God, predestined to be conformed. It is a process to the image of his son. Number two. Sorry, it's number three. It's our second point this morning, back in Romans 12. Not only is a healthy body a loving body, and a healthy body is a pure body, but number three, a healthy body is active with a fervent spirit. A healthy body is an active body with a fervent spirit. Before I look at Colossians, would you look at verse 11? Do not be slothful. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. If you want to follow me over to Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians 3. This is in a section where Paul is giving admonition to wives. He gives admonitions to husbands. He gives admonition to children, to fathers. And then in verse 22, watch what the Bible says. Literally, the word here is slaves. Bond servants. Verse 22. Bond servants obey in everything... You say, literally? Like, these are real slaves back in this time? Absolutely. What does the Bible tell them to do? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. Oh, here he comes. By the way, we could apply this to our jobs. Oh, here she comes. Boss is coming. Hurry, act like you. Okay, click off of that and pull up the other one, right? Click on the boss button. Oh, yeah, spreadsheet. Good, working on this. Pounding away. Facebook goes to a little icon down at the bottom. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Watch verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily. Notice those two things. I'm going to key on that. Work. Serve. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Work heartily, though. Literally from the inside, engaged in your spirit. 
adding importance to this. Work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. I'm literally not doing it for my earthly master. I'm doing this as to the Lord. Why? Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. Let me fix something. Popping a lot this morning. Verse 23 again, look at it. Whatever you do, work heartily. I'll qualify this in a minute, but I just want to make a true statement. I have been perceived at times as being a bit intense on some things. Like what? i just tell you, kind of my track record. I've been perceived, accused maybe, of being a little intense on board games. That, that's me. That guy, that's me. Board games. Rook. Uh, is Phyllis in here? Is Phyllis Rice in here? She's not? Okay. I used to, uh, I see Nathan over to my left and Phyllis and Charlie. That was our pastor and pastor's wife. Years ago, uh, we would have Sunday morning, Sunday night service. And during the summer when school was out and Deanna and I were teaching, we would go to the Rice's house and we'd play Rook. And I got to tell you, I didn't know how to play Rook. But once they taught us, I'm all in, right? And so Deanna and I are across from them. And maybe the Goodings would join us. And they're the Rice's. And everybody's talking and all of those things. Okay. Uh, more than a few times, Deanna and I left home not really talking because I was upset because you're not paying attention to what cards they're throwing down on the table. You're just talking. You got to knock this fellowship stuff off. We got to win the rook game. I've known to be, been known to be a little intense. I remember uh, I haven't played basketball like real basketball in a long, long time. It's been years. I used to kind of be a little intense. I was that guy that in pickup games would pick you up full court. Some of you be like, I don't even know what that means. If I didn't pick you up full court, I would pick you up at half court. And people, literally, guys would be like, what are you doing? This is pickup. This is Monday night. This ain't a game. We don't have uniform. There's no refs out here. Get off me. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to shut you down. <laughs> I, I remember one, one poor kid. His name was Chris Campbell. He was seventh or eighth grade. It was P.E. I remember the side of the gymnasium. It was the main entrance. And we were playing basketball. Is P.E., and I would jump in there and play with the guys. And that guy went up for a shot, and I saw what he was doing, and I'm over here guarding my man, and I saw Chris down there, and the goal's there, and he's getting ready to shoot. And I remember leaving here, and I come over, and wham, swatted the ball into the wall, and here he is like a seventh grade, and I must have grazed the top of his head. I don't even know who Sam Hill is. All I know is Chris said, What in the Sam Hill are you doing? And I said, I'm playing basketball. What are you doing? And I kind of, you need to, poor little seventh grade kid, got some 26, 27-year-old dude flailing on him. Supposed to be his Bible teacher and his coach. Speaking of coaching, I've been known to be intense at coaching and speaking. Digging a ditch. Probably most of this, some genetic, I guess, Probably most of it in the way I was raised. My dad wants a ditch dug. I'm going 100 miles at it. Wide open. I am not saying these things boastfully. In fact, it's been ugly. It's been very regrettable. Talking about coaching, boy, if, if I could undo a couple of years of coaching, I would, go, I would revisit 2011 and 12 because it was just, man... I'm glad most of you did not see me coach in 2011 and 12. It wasn't good. I was just, uh, uh, a lot of regrets. 
I hope some of those things have been tempered, those that are not that important. But if you would look at Romans, look at it with, with your eyes. Be not slothful. Don't be lazy. Be not slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's Paul's point. We're called to not be lazy. Don't be sluggish. You think, you think he's talking about just when you serve the Lord? I think he's talking about in general. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. But especially when you bring in the factor of serving the Lord, if you're all jacked up and intense on those things, how much more should you be for the things of the Lord? Do something for Christ. Do something. Serve the Lord. And if I could impress upon you, if it's worth doing any time in life, but especially that which is for the Lord, if it's worth doing, do it with all your might. Work heartily. Ask to the Lord, not to men. Don't try to please men. What if I like do these things as to please the Lord? Well, I have a bad boss. Well, don't serve that boss, but be the best employee at the job serving God. Lord, this is for you. They will notice. Be the best employee. What are you doing for Christ? Like, name it. What are you doing for Christ? Does it get your best? Do you do it with excellence? The word fervent there literally means, get this, be fervent in spirit. Watch. In your spirit, be at the boiling point. You say, Jeff, that kind of sounds like you about what you were describing a while ago. Yeah, maybe on some of the wrong things I was that way. Be at the boiling point. I want to be clear here because I'm a preacher, right? As a preacher and a teacher, sometimes we can be fooled by externals. I've, I've, I've seen this before. Someone's over here and they, they're loud and move around a lot and someone will be like, oh, they're on fire for the Lord and over here someone who's more measured and lower tones and they're not on fire for God. Listen, fervency is not just about volume. It's not about just the speed at which you do something. You say, then what in the world is this fervency, this boiling in spirit? Here, listen, it's about focus. It's about concern and care. It's about urgency. It's about passion. It's about value placed on this. Have you ever someone, heard someone that doesn't really raise their voice, but boy, they just keep returning to that. You know that is important to them. They just, every time they get a chance, they revisit that over and over and over. They don't even have to raise their voice. You just know they are passionate. Their spirit is boiling inside. This one over here, don't be fooled just by the externals. That may be just how they're wired. Paul is saying, be fervent. Be boiling, grace for you. Boil in your spirit when serving the Lord. Does that describe you? Nothing else we do in life should be as vibrant as our worship of God. When we were singing a while ago, did you care? Were you focused? Were you intense? Or were you just kind of drifting? But boy, you'll go pop another kind of music on in the car and you'll be all into it and it'll get your best. But at the Lord's house, you just kind of chill because I don't want to be seen as fanatical. Something's wrong. Does anything else in your life get a better effort than your worship of God and your service for God because it shouldn't? And again, not to be too much personal today, I remember years and years ago I was out doing door-to-door visitation with a young man at the time named Jack Dean. And Jack, uh, this is Jack Jr., he's a grandson of another man. But he and I were over in Loblolly Pines. So Loblolly Pines is right down here, a third of a mile on the left. Back at the other side of Loblolly Pines, there was a lady between like 85 to 90 years old. I remember she was 
older. I'm not saying she's old. I'm just saying it was older than us. So 85, 90 years old. And there was a chain link fence. And we were talking with her and I was doing most of the talking. I could sense this poor lady, she really felt sorry for me. No kidding. She felt sorry for me. She even said something, this is not a direct quote, but something to this effect. And by the way, I wasn't even talking as energetically as I am now. We were just concerned for her soul and we were really focused on her soul and where she's going to spend eternity trying to keep talking about Jesus. And she finally said, you know, you, you, just, you just need to calm down. And she said, you just need to relax on your religious beliefs. You need to live. You, you just need to calm down on all this. Can I tell you something? No. Not going to. I don't want to. I ask a sincere question. I really mean this. Check yourself. Why are most Christians far less zealous with the truth than Muslims are with lies? Why are most Christians far less zealous about the truth than Muslims are about lies? William Barclay writes the following. He says, there's a certain intensity in the Christian life. There is no room for lethargy in it. The Christian cannot take things in an easygoing way. Why? Skipping ahead in a quote. He says, because to the Christian, quote, the world is always a battleground between good and evil. The time, this is key, the time is short. Life is a preparation ground for eternity, unquote. Now continuing, actually, this is his, his words. The Christian may burn out, but he cannot rust out. You know who I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Revelation where Jesus, the Son of God, writes a letter to a literal church in the city of Laodicea. And he says, you know what? I would rather you be just cold on me, but really want you to be boiling at the fever point, the fervent point of your spirit for me, rather than just this lukewarm. I'm not too hot, not too cold, just kind of lukewarm. Jesus says, I want to spew you out of my mouth. In other words, you make me sick, I want to vomit. Please don't let that describe your Christian life. I know I'm a little intense today, get that. But we're talking about something important. A healthy body of believers is a loving body, it's a pure body. But it's an active body. What are we doing for the Lord. One last thing before we move to the third point. See the end of verse 11. Look at the last three words. You see the end of verse 11? Serve the Lord. Can I take just a moment? I'm not going to harm the text. I hope I'm not harming the text. And I'm going to kind of talk about something I really don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not a Greek scholar. But a while ago I referenced Barclay and I'll give one more quote from him. He points out that when they were copying these manuscripts that because of the way they would do almost a shorthand version sometimes to save space or time apparently some would remove the vowels leaving only like the consonants right in these words well the consonants for serving the Lord are the same as the idea of this serve the time or seize the time in other words, Lord and time are so close together, if you were to remove the vowels, they look the exact same. You want to know how some people have actually interpreted and translated the end of verse 11. Not just serve the Lord, but this, seize the opportunity. If that's the case, that does flow with this be fervent, don't be slothful. Serve the Lord definitely fits, most people go that direction. But could it be seize the opportunity? I think I'm doing no harm if I make a quick application. Ephesians chapter 5, just in case Romans 12 is not saying this, let me go to Ephesians 5 and that way we'll be on safe ground. So I'll make a quick application. Ephesians 5, verse 15. 
look carefully then how you walk. I'm not going into the context. A lot of the same material as is in Romans 12. A lot of the same attitude. Boy, we're living in a simple world. Look carefully then how you walk, grace view. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the Lord's will? We have this much time. Seize the opportunities. One more quote from Barclay. He writes the following. I hope it challenges you as it does me. He writes this. There are three things which come not back. Set it up. Get it in your mind. What are these? There's more than three, but here are three he chooses. There are three things which come not back. The spent arrow, the spoken word, and the lost opportunity. Unquote. Three things you'll never get back. The spent arrow. My dad taught me when we went hunting, have a gun. Don't ever point at anything you're not planning on killing. Keep it pointed at the ground unless you... Oh, there's some movement over in the bushes. Don't shoot at movement in the bushes. That's how you kill people. That's how you kill people's dogs. You only shoot at something you're planning to kill because once you fire it, you can't bring it back. The spoken word. We've heard this often. Once you say it in the heated moment and you let it fly, how many times have we done it? Boy, if I could just draw. Come back. Please come back. Too late. They cannot unhear. They can't unhear. You can't unspeak. But he says the third thing that doesn't come back is the lost opportunity. I'll just tell you, eternity is limitless. Time is not. We are not in eternity. We are in time. A lot of time has been wasted. A lot of opportunity has been wasted. I'll tell you how I'd like to live. I don't live this way, but I wish to do better. I'm picturing in my mind a real surfer. I mean a surfer that goes around from California to Australia to different places around the world looking for the big one. And he finally gets it. And how does a surfer surf when he finally gets the big one? He gets everything he can out of that. You say, I can't relate with that. I want you to picture that you're going to Disney World and you've never been, right? Going to Disney World. And you have two days of passes. But they are park hopper passes. Meaning you can go back and forth between the different parks. You say, that's wonderful. Yeah, here's the problem. There's four parks. You have two days. What are you going to do? You say, well, I'm just going to kind of chill and relax and, and warm my way into the park. Here's how I would advise you to do, like Deanne and I did when our kids were little bitty. We had a double stroller. You get there about an hour before they're open, and you stay until they absolutely close, and you go home exhausted and come back the next day, and you go just all over, conquer, do everything you possibly can. Seize the opportunity. I'm going to throw out five things. Maybe one speaks to you. What opportunity is right before you right now that you need to make the most of this opportunity? Is it this? This phase of your children's life, you'll never have it back. This phase. Especially if they're younger. Is there an opportunity to share your faith? Seize the opportunity. Serve the Lord. Do it with a fervent spirit. Don't be lazy. An opportunity, maybe a specific person or an opportunity to go somewhere that you know you're going to be able to share your faith. Here's one. Has the Lord put in your hand and in your heart an opportunity to warn someone and you know it's going to be risky and they might take it wrong, but I've got to tell them in love before it's too late. Someone here, and again, I would trust the Lord to use this. I don't even know why he put this in the notes, but an opportunity at work 
to righteously increase your impact is on the table and you're really debating it. And I'm not saying you need to do it. All I'm saying is, is this an opportunity from the Lord saying you need to seize the opportunity. It's not always going to be there. Three things that don't come back. The spent arrow, the spoken word, and the lost opportunity. And the others to all of us. I feel this last one. I feel like Grace View is at a point. I don't know all of its history, but I've been here coming up on two years. I think we need to be really careful what we do at this point in our history, our existence. We're praying about some things. If you were wise, you say, exactly what are they? What are the details? In time. But we're praying about some things that you would be wise to say, Lord, I beg you, give wisdom to the elders as they're praying over these issues. What a unique time that I think following the Lord's will could really do some great things in the future. Number three. Romans chapter 12. Looking at verse 12. We find that a healthy body is loving, a healthy body is pure, a healthy body is active with a fervent spirit. Fourth, a healthy body is strong. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. A healthy body is strong. I need to define a term very quickly. Look at verse 12 again. Rejoice in hope. We know what rejoice is. You say, well, I already know what hope is. If you want to write it down, write this. Christian hope, this is so important. You say, Jeff, I've heard this a million times. Internalize this. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. Well, I'm kind of hoping. I'm hoping, and I'm wishing, and I'm praying, and I'm hoping, and I'm wishing, and I'm praying. I'm kind of wishing. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. What is it, Jeff? Christian hope is confident expectation. I expect this confidently. I know this is going to happen. You say, right, we're going to do it. No, 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 that's wishful thinking. I wish I could do better, but I know me. My track record stinks. I have no faith in me. I have full, confident expectation. The Lord will do this. And because of that, literally, truly, the best is yet to come. We're ready to have the best. It's not here yet. It is ahead of us. I could say it this way. Hope is less something. I'm not saying it's not something we do. I'm saying hope, confident expectation is less something we do. It's more something we have. We have it. I have. Listen, you have confident expectation. I don't know if you are exercising confident expectation. You say, well, I'm a true Christian. I put my faith and trust in Christ. If you have done that, you have confident expectation. You should be joyous because of it. Let that sink in. Somebody here, you say, I don't really need this this morning. Life's great. Everything looks good this coming week. Somebody here, you need this. I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you the truth in the simplest of terms. It will be better for us. It will be better for us. And somebody, you're like, I like simple sentences. I need some good news. Listen to me. Rejoice in hope, confident expectation in what God will do because his word's on the line. It will be better for us. Let me simple sentence. Heaven is real. Jesus is going to take us there if you have put your faith and trust in him. Heaven is real. Two Wednesday nights ago, we started looking at, off, off of John Hutchison's sermon, 
three or four different realities. We have an American reality. We're stuck in it. It's all we know. And I tried to let us see on the other side of the world, there are people living in a whole different reality. They've literally never heard the name Jesus. They have no Bible. But at the same time, guys, listen, there is in heaven, there is a real heaven. It is a reality more real than this. They're doing it right now. And then there is a hell. This is a real reality. Heaven is real. And Jesus is going to take us there. God is more amazing, far greater. God, far greater than you can ask or think or conjure up. Heaven is far greater. That's why rejoice. Like right now. I'm not saying like, woo, start running laps and grab the flag and grab, you know, stuff I've seen done before. Oh, I'm going to express my... Joy is this deep-seated thing. It's beyond happiness. It is real. It's deep. It's true. It's, it's based in something. It's rooted in something. Promises of the Word of God. Hold on. Hold on. So uh, I got lunch on the brain. And I got this thing coming up a little later. Hold on. I'm going to heaven. Why do we keep forgetting this? Rejoice. You said, Jeff, I'll tell you why we keep forgetting it. Well, I know what, I know the other side of reality. Can we show John 16, 33? Look at this. Literally hours before he'd be arrested in the garden, Jesus says to his disciples, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Guys, I'm just telling you, look at the middle. In the world, you will have tribulation. You say, Jeff, that whole heaven thing, that's wonderful, but tribulation's real. Oh, I know. Second Timothy chapter 3, look at verse number 12. Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says, in this life, you're going to have tribulation. You know what we conclude? Listen, trials and tribulation are inevitable. I'm going to go ahead and say they are normal. Normal. We've got to change our thinking. So many people, they struggle in their faith because life hits. And all of a sudden we start saying, what's wrong? Where's God? Is there even a God? Look at this happen and that happen. And what's going on? We assume that it's supposed to be trouble-free. Jesus straight up tells us, you're going to have tribulation in the world. I thought about one couple that comes to our church and their parents. I'll not say who it is, but their parents every day. They're older every day. They're in a trial. From the moment they wake up, they're in a trial. All day, That's their life, trial. We go in trials and we come out of trials, most of us. Some of you, you live with it maybe every day. Somebody here is probably, there's probably someone in a horrible relationship. Someone here, you have what's called chronic pain. It is real. It is just your life. I understand that is not my life right now. But these truths apply to all of us equally. Trials and pain are real. They're inevitable. They're normal. They're more in some people's lives than they are in others. They're more at times of life than they are in others. But here's the good news. They're not forever. And we know that they serve a purpose that God has determined. You say, what exactly is that? I can't tell you all the time. All I know is it serves a purpose. That gives me comfort. James chapter 1, verse number 2. James 1, 2 through 4 sounds a lot like Romans 5. But I want to use this because it's not in Romans. We've been in Romans, so let's find it in another place of Scripture. James 1, 2. Count. Count it all joy. Well, it doesn't feel like joy. That's why you've got to count it. Go ahead and count it. All joy, my brothers. What? When. If, no, when you meet trials of various kinds. Please listen to me. Trials coming. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? How can we do that? For you know, it's about what you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it work. God's got a plan. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Stay the course. You say, Jeff, if hope is this confident expectation... What is this patience in verse number 12? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. We know tribulation is coming. What is this patience? Patience means steadfastly endure when life is difficult and even when life seems impossible. All of us are going to face it. All of us will face it. I'm going to tell you why you will not quit. You say, how will I not quit? How will I be patient in tribulation and rejoice in hope? Here's how. We must properly connect the elements of verse 12. I want you to focus for a moment, literally only Romans 12, 12. Look at verse 12, 12. Three things. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. So rejoice, have joy in confident expectation. We're sure this is going to happen. Be patient, enduring, persevering in tribulation. We know tribulation is going to happen. Be constant in prayer. Quick thought before we go to our last verses this morning. We must connect all three. 12A, 12B, 12C make a cycle. 12A is this joy-filled hope, a confident, know what's going to happen, expectation, joy-filled hope, fuels, watch, fuels endurance. Patience, perseverance. Where's, how are they able to do that? Because they have joy-filled hope. Okay, that fuels the endurance. Well, where's the joy-filled hope come from? Constant prayer. 12C leads back to 12A, which flows and makes possible 12B. But there's tribulation, right? That leads to 12C, prayer. Go if you would. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12. You're going to want to turn there. 2 Corinthians 12. Literally turn there if you have a Bible with you on your phone and your lap. 2 Corinthians 12. 30 seconds of background. Paul has founded a church in Corinth. Picture it's like this. And then he goes and he starts more churches. But while he's gone, false teachers come behind him and try to undermine him and belittle his apostleship. And so now he's writing another letter to the Corinthians to get them to understand. Okay? Don't leave my apostleship. I have told you the truth. I really am the, am, the, am the man of God. And though he hates it, you're going to see this come up. There's a reason I'm giving this background. He's going to hate to do it. Paul's actually reached a point where he has to like brag on himself because the false teachers are being followed and they're bragging themselves up. And so Paul's actually going to like, well, let's do a quick comparison. Watch verse 1. Romans, first, 2 Corinthians 12, 1. So Paul's been boasting, bragging on his credentials, not himself, but what the Lord's done in his life in chapter 11 and then chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions. He says, you want to talk about things? He says, let's compare visions and revelations of the Lord. Visions and revelations. He says, I know a man. By the way, that man is Paul. It's very clear. He's like, I don't even want to brag on me, but if I have to, you're forcing me to do it. Let me tell you why I am the true man of God. And then he still has humility, and so he's going to talk about himself in the third person, but it is Paul, verse 2. 
under the inspiration of, of, the, of the Holy Spirit, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. What? Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. I'm talking about visions and revelations. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I literally, I don't know if I, if, I, don't know if I was like literally lifted and I wasn't here for a while and I was carried somewhere else or if this was something that was technically out of the body but it was that real. I really can't tell you. Verse 4, he says, this man, he heard things, he heard things that cannot be told, can't tell you. I just don't have the ability. That's how I take that. Cannot be told. Which man may not. Notice those two words. I can't, I don't have the ability. And even if I could, I may not. I'm not allowed to tell you everything that I saw and heard. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, he's going to tell this is real, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. If I were to boast, it is me, this really happened. But I refrain from it. Why, Paul? Why haven't you told this before? Paul, you've written other books. Why haven't you said about this trip to the third heaven? Man, this is awesome. Nobody else is going around claiming this. Why haven't you said it? So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. No one seen or heard what he had seen or heard. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Big debate over the thorn. Is it a person? Is it a demonic force? Is it a physical condition? Who knows? So we're, we're not going to go into that now. Bottom line, something literally opposed him and it's tribulation, trial. It really hurts. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So what's Paul do? He said, I prayed about it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Lord, please. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's a, it's, he says, you want to know my credentials? It's about the things that have happened to me that you guys are not too excited about. Maybe you're embarrassed about. Those are my real credentials. What, what God is doing in my life, what he's brought me through, the trials and the tribulations. That's how you know I'm the true man of God. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Look this way. Paul says in verse 1, let's talk about visions and revelations. I know a man who 14 years ago went to the third heaven. I don't know if it's in the body or out of the body. He said, Jeff, visions, revelations, what are those like? Listen, I can't go into it. I challenge you. Go home. You say, I've heard about visions in the Bible. What are they like? It is not like your dreams. You say, okay, well, then what are they like? All I can tell you is this. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is on a rooftop. He sees a vision. It's a vision. It's of, an, of a sheet of animals that come down. You have to read it. Acts 10. It's a vision. Acts chapter 12, the same Peter is literally in prison. And in the night, he's supposed to die the next day a martyr's death. But in the night, an angel, this is reality. An angel hits him on the side. He wakes up, put your sandals on, gets up, door opens. I don't know all the details. All I know is the angel's going about, does a Jedi whammy on those guards, Jedi whammy on those guards, fall out, fall out. They go past the first set of guards, second set of guards. Uh-oh, iron gate. Iron gate opens up. 
It's in the middle of the night. Peter walks out, and then they go down one street, and when they go down the, the, the first street, the angel disappears. And the Bible says that Peter thought he was seeing a vision. Put it together. What are visions like? He just had one in chapter 10. It's reality in chapter 12, but he thinks it's a vision until he realizes, whoa, the angels, oh, I'm really free. That's how real they are. I don't know if this is in the body or out of the body. All I know is 14 years ago, I went to the third heaven. This atmosphere is the first heaven. Space is the second heaven. The abode of God, what he calls paradise. I have to ask you guys this question. Here's my question. 14 years ago, it made such an impact, he knows the time. I know he had time to add it up. I think if you ask Paul when it was eight years, hey, did something like eight years ago, three mo- eight, eight years and three months ago, this happened. Wow, you kind of know, yes. It's 14 years and one week ago. What? What happened? I don't tell everybody this, so here's all you need to know. I went to the third heaven. Here's my question. 14 years is 5,110 days plus. My question is this. How many days of the 5,110 days since this happened do you suppose Paul thought about what he heard and what he saw? He saw heaven. How many out of the 5,110? The Bible doesn't say. I'm going to tell you my opinion. I believe it's every day. I think that's why he lived the way he lived. And he's telling the Romans, rejoice in hope. I've seen it. Be patient, enduring in tribulation. We're in a tough time. Patiently endure. You make it. It's way better. Well, what's it like? I can't tell you. Even if I wanted to, I, I can't. I may not and I cannot. It's just, uh, just stay the course. Please just stay the course and rejoice. It ends really well for you. I promise you. You've got to stay focused on this. I think it dominated his life. I realize we've got people in our country that are going around saying they've, they died or their child died and they went to heaven and revived and came back. And you're like, Jeff, is that true or not? I have no idea. We cannot say whether a person's personal account did or didn't happen. I think I have a litmus test. Let's see how they live the rest of their life. If those people who say they died and went to heaven just go live a normal little life, they didn't see heaven. Paul did not live a normal life. Go back quickly. Look at chapter 11 very quickly. I'm going to fly through this. Paul's kind of fussing at the Corinthians. He's got to brag on himself again. They've had these abusive spiritual leaders. I mean, spiritual abuse has taken place. You talk about narcissistic egomaniacs in control of their church. Verse 21, Paul says, To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. For what? Well, they're putting on airs. They come slap you in the face. I think that's literal. They take advantage of you. They devour you. They take advantage of your money. He says, to my shame, sarcastically, I must say, we were too weak for that. I don't do that to you. And you see that as a bad thing because I'm not as authoritative. Verse 21 in the middle. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, here's my litmus test. If those people say, I went to the third heaven, do you spend the rest of your life filled with evangelism and missions? If not, I don't think you really saw heaven because anyone who did is going to live like this. Paul says, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. I'm going to have to brag. hate to do it. Are, are these leaders, Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? They say they're the servants of Christ. I'm a better one. Man, I hate to say that. Watch what he says. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, I outwork them all. I wonder why Paul worked so hard. Yes, he was zealous. 
He was zealous before he became a Christian. But when he saw the third heaven, guys, I believe this is second only to the Damascus Road experience. It dominates Paul's life. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. People hated him preaching the gospel. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with, with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. Paul, you're gone again? I'm on the road again. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. I care. You must have really seen something. I'm telling you, I saw it. It's real. Back to Romans. This is our last part. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Those three. That's Paul's life. He's rejoicing in hope. Why? Well, he's already seen the third heaven. Because he's seen it, it fuels unending, persevering endurance. But what about when life smacks him in the face, like this list we just read of all these hardships? It causes Paul to go to prayer. What about this thorn in the flesh? It drives Paul to prayer. So our note there is this. The reality of the vision gave him joyful hope and patient endurance amid tribulation, but the realities on earth made him desperate in prayer to God. That's the three things in verse 12. One leads to the other, which drives him to the other. Joyful hope keeps him going. Enduring patiently amid tribulation, but the tribulation causes him to pray desperately back to God, but he can never get away from the vision of heaven that he saw. And so he keeps hope. Guys, my point is this. How often do you think about heaven? I'm going to tell you. Most of you, right now, honest, put a time on the last time you really let thoughts of heaven and the glory of God really lift you above the circumstances. Some of you are like, I cannot remember the last time. If you had never been to Disney World and you were going next Monday, every day between now and Monday, you would think about Disney World every day. You'd be online, oh, counting down the day. Three more days, we're going to Disney World. Heaven is so much better than Disney World. And we don't think about it. We get beat down. And I think our forgetfulness of heaven causes us to lose our joy. We lose our hope. We have this confident expectation, but we don't live with confident expectation. And we get beat down rather than patiently enduring, persevering. The cycle. Can't get away from it. 12A, hope, heaven. 12B, tribulation. This is real life. Smacks you in the face. 12C, prayer. I don't know what you've experienced. Many of you have a lot more pain and hurt and trial than I've ever had. But you don't know what tomorrow holds for me. Could get real awkward this week if something happens. Like, he just said that. Remember when he said, didn't know what tomorrow. Boy, they're in it now. We don't know. Trial, I know this. Trial's on the horizon, pain's on the horizon. It's coming. But I also know this. Do you see right past that? you see bigger than that? Eternal, longer lasting, much greater. Oh yeah, trial, tribulation, pain. There. Heaven, the glories of God. We've got to 
stay in prayer, if we'll stay in prayer, our hope, our joy-filled hope stays fueled, which then fuels the patient, persevering endurance. Be constant in prayer. Trouble is coming, so is heaven. Prayer brings joyful endurance amid trouble. Kind of the last thing I would give you is I think I skipped a note. You say, Jeff, how important is prayer? Don't wait for persecution, for trial, for trouble to come. And like, boy, now I'm going to start praying. I'll tell you, you're going to start praying. But you're not going to be as ready as if, I'm going to go ahead and start praying now, constantly devoted to prayer. I'm not going to wait for trouble. I'm going to spend time with the Lord. Why? Because anybody, don't raise your hand. There's some folks who know exactly what this note means. If you have never learned to pray, it may sound foreign, but genuine prayer is a taste of heaven. Genuine prayer is a taste of heaven. I call it getting recentered. I ain't going to tell you every time I try to pray, I get locked in, but I can tell you sometimes I know it's real, and boy, I get recentered. Heaven, hope, filled, hope, expectation, this is real. God, who is the best part of heaven, is right here talking to me. All of a sudden, I'm getting it. Things of earth are, are backing up a little bit. They're being put in perspective. Uh-oh, get up from that and go back to living life, and life smacks me upside the head, and all of a sudden, I start getting a little bit discouraged. I'm running to prayer, and it starts fueling my joy-filled hope again, and it gives me patient endurance. That's the pattern of verse